Praise the Lord. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Jesus is speaking and he says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew. Notice it's the same storm. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Notice they're not astonished at him, they're astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now we've, uh, we've talked about this uh, verse of scripture uh, at length for, um, well, some time. There's just some things there that the, that the Lord is, uh, keeps talking to me about it. And, and I don't know if there's more there for me to see or just talking about it enough to where it becomes ingrained in us. But notice that phrase, they marveled at uh, Jesus' doctrine. They were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority. Notice the word one is in italics. It literally reads from the Greek as having authority. He taught them as having authority. Now the word has, or the word as, it refers to the manner in which something is done. We might uh, summarize it by saying how. But then the next word where it says having, that word means to hold. So Jesus taught them how to hold authority. Jesus went about teaching how to hold authority. Now folks, you can thumb back in your Bible or your iPad, whatever device you use to see the Word of God for yourself. And notice that this is the end of the, the, uh, um, the most famous, the most revered sermons that Jesus ever preached. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in chapter 5. And he speaks those things that, we, that are known in church circles as the Beatitudes, blessed be the poor, and so forth. He talks about, or he, this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And notice what it says about what he taught. He taught them how to hold authority. He taught them how to hold authority. You know, this really shouldn't be a, a, a big surprise to us. It was a big surprise to me when I discovered it. But it really shouldn't be a big surprise to us because you all remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God identifies his plan for man. God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion or authority. The word dominion and authority are very similar terms. They're really interchangeable in most places where they're used. But God's purpose was to create man to have authority here on the earth. Let him have dominion over all the works of our hands. Well, then why should it seem to us a strange thing that Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the very reason or the very thing, the subject matter, for which God intended man to hold and occupy here on the earth? It would make sense. I think uh, uh, a lot of our religious traditions or religious ideas get in the way on this one because I always thought, that Jesus taught the disciples, taught the people, and then taught the disciples to go out and preach that he was the Messiah. But that doesn't fit anything in, that we see in the four Gospels. There are so many times where Jesus would heal somebody and then he'd say, no, don't go tell anybody. Well, if he was trying to get the word out about being the Christ, being the Messiah, that seems like a poor manner to do it. Instead, the Bible says that Jesus sent the disciples out to tell them that the kingdom of God was near. Now, he explained the same restrictions were on the disciples that are on him. Where Jesus found unbelief, doubt and unbelief, he wasn't able to do any mighty works or miracles or healings or so forth. Not any big things anyway, no blind eyes, crippled legs healed or anything like that. But he was able in, uh, in some places, for example, in his hometown of Nazareth, Mark chapter 6 tells us that he was able to heal a few folks with minor ailments. Not too much wrong with them. But that's the only miracles, the only results that he got there. Now, I think we also need to take into account in Luke chapter 4, which is Luke's account of Jesus going to Nazareth. Luke doesn't tell us too much about the end result. 
But he does give us information about what Jesus taught. Luke 4.18, Jesus found the place in the scripture. We know it to be Isaiah 61. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to, to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then the Bible says Jesus sat down and said to the congregation, everybody, he's got everybody's attention. Now they've heard of him. They've heard of his healing miracles and the results that he got in Capernaum. And so they're waiting to see what he's going to do, I guess. And so the eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fashioned on him. And Jesus simply said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Well, what does that mean? That means Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's anointed to heal the sick and preach the deliverance to the captives. But even that, we know, and I would imagine that the, certainly the rabbi would know, the ruler of the synagogue would know. Don't know if it was too much common knowledge among the, the, uh, the average folks. But those scriptures are referring to the Messiah. But really, in essence, Jesus is just saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and anointed me to heal the sick and do all these things that you've heard of me in Capernaum. So it's very possible that he did not draw attention to himself, at least from the, uh, the account that we have in Luke chapter 4. He didn't draw attention to the fact that he was the Messiah. More so, he drew attention to the fact that he was anointed or empowered by God to do great things of deliverance, great works of deliverance. Well, that goes along with what Jesus told the disciples to preach. Jesus told the disciples to go into a city and preach the kingdom of God. And the only definition we've got of the kingdom of God, we could, we could come up with our own, and I guess we do in our, uh, in our minds, but the kingdom of God would certainly be the boundary and the territory over which God has rule. But Jesus defined it this way when he was giving the disciples what we know of as the, the Lord's Prayer. It really wasn't the Lord's Prayer, it was the disciples' prayer. But where Jesus is giving them what we know of as the Lord's Prayer, early on in the prayer, almost immediately, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the kingdom coming has got to be the kingdom of God, isn't it? Because that's who we're praying to. When the disciples were praying, following Jesus' pattern in prayer, Jesus was instructing them to pray for the kingdom of God to come. The Bible says it's already come now through Jesus' resurrection. But then the only definition that we have of the kingdom of God is what Jesus says next in the Lord's Prayer, where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Well, the earth belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? The Bible says so. He's certainly the creator of it. Now, clearly things went a little awry when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. But it didn't change God. Adam's fall, sin and death coming to and um, taking control over mankind and over the earth, didn't change God and it didn't change God's purpose, original purpose for mankind. I just don't believe the devil and God are equals. Do you? I think sometimes we assume, and of course we assume wrongly, that the devil stole everything about God's plan for mankind, stripped man of his power and ability and so forth, and that can't be true. If that were true, so that the devil has power in the earth and man has no more place of authority or rule that God intended for him to have, then why would the Old Testament tell us about the times where God gave man a choice? Deuteronomy chapter 29, for example, God said to the people of Israel through Moses, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that you and your household shall be saved. Well, if the devil's running everything, then what's man's choice got to do with anything? Why is he saying choose life? Why is he saying choose blessings instead of curses? Man still has a free will. Man still has a choice. So when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach the kingdom of God, he's sending them out to preach that God wants the same thing for you here on the earth that he wants for you in heaven. That's a marvelous thought. You know, I've made this comment before, and forgive me if you 
think that I'm going over this stuff too many times. But this fascinates me. It thrills me. I was thinking the other day, it was about 42 years ago that I first heard my, that I heard my first sermon on the subject of faith. And over those last 42 years, almost two-thirds of my life, I can honestly say that I've heard more sermons on faith and done more studying on the subject of faith than just about anybody anywhere. You'd be hard put to find somebody that's heard more about faith and studied more about faith than I have over these last 42 years. And I'm more thrilled about it now than I was when I first heard it. It never gets old. I get amused sometimes when people say, oh, he's teaching on faith. We've heard that before. Well, folks, if you've ever thought that you've heard that before, you've never heard it yet for real. Because the word is quick and powerful. It's full of life and power. The Lord showed me some things about the subject of faith here just a few days ago. Well, a week or so ago, I guess. And it just shocked me. Just shocked me. It's kind of like, you mean there's more in there than what I knew? But there'll always be more in there than what we know. It's a living thing. We never plumb the depths of the truth of God's word. So when Jesus is teaching the disciples or teaching the crowds, the people that come to him, he taught them about man's place of authority. Now, again, he he identified and and, um, certainly told the people that he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to do these great works. And that's all it took. If people would just have simply believed that, didn't mean they have to have answers for everything. The people in Nazareth thought they couldn't, that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah or the chosen one because they knew his family. And their idea was, if the Messiah is truly the Son of God, then we wouldn't know his family. But even at that, if they had just set that aside and say, well, here's what I think, and some things don't seem to make sense because of what we know in our history with him, but look at the works and the miracles that he did in Capernaum. If they had just simply believed that he was anointed, that's all it would have taken. Then he would have been able to do the works, same works that he did in in, uh, other cities. Blind eyes would have opened, deaf ears would have opened, cripples would have been healed. The people that God wanted to be healed, which was every sick person in that city, could have been healed. So when Jesus is teaching the multitudes, and again, this is the tail end. We just read the, uh, the part about the sower sowing the word. I'm sorry, the house built upon a rock. But this goes back to the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he taught them how to hold authority. He taught them how to hold authority. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And without taking time to go back and read it, you remember the story. The previous day, the day before, Jesus came to a fig tree and it was green and looked like it should have had leaves, or should have had figs on it rather, but all it had was leaves. And so Jesus cursed it. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And so the condition of the tree clearly shows Jesus' exercise of authority over the tree. When Jesus cursed the tree, that was it. It was the exercise of his authority that changed the, the, uh, the condition of the tree. So Jesus answering the disciples' unspoken question. They just bring the tree to his attention. But Jesus understands what they're looking for. They want to know how he did this. Now, folks, this is the last week of Jesus' ministry on the earth. Within just a few days after this occurrence, after the cursing of the fig tree, and it was symbolic of Israel that represented Israel, who had rejected God numerous times through numerous prophets and will very soon reject God through him as well in just a few days. When the disciples asked Jesus or bring the attention to or bring attention to the fig tree, the condition of the fig tree to Jesus, Jesus knows he, that they're asking, how did you do this? 
It would seem like after three years of being with Jesus, they would understand this thing called faith. So Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Folks, this word have is the word, the Greek word that means to hold. It's the same word that we looked at over in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, I believe it is. He taught them as having or how to hold authority and not as the scribes. You know what this word is in the Greek? Here's the problem. The problem is so many times people see certain scriptures about authority, but they don't know how to use that authority. And if we just find out, and, and it's, the Bible's very clear about it, the Bible is clear in Genesis one twenty six that God's purpose for man was to have authority over the earth, give him authority over the earth, literally make, God, uh, uh, make Adam the ruler or the God of this world. Well, how is he supposed to exercise that authority? Well, there's no scripture. Verse 27 doesn't tell us that God said after he created man, now here's what I want you to do. We know the charge that he gave him to dress and keep the garden, to guard and protect it. That's what dress and keep means, to guard and protect it. But there's no clear-cut scripture, specific scripture in the creation account that tells us how God intended for Adam and Eve to use that authority to guard and protect the garden. There's no scripture that tells us here's how you do it. But the scripture that does tell us in Genesis 126 that we're made in the image and likeness of God would indicate to us that we're supposed to exercise authority on the earth just like he did. And chapter 1 is all about, and God said, and it was. Ten different times in the first chapter of Genesis, it tells us that God recreated or reshaped the earth, formed the earth, brought things back into order. Genesis chapter 1 says in the beginning, God made the earth and the universe, the stars in the sky. It says, but the Bible tells us, and the earth was or became without form and void. Isaiah 45, verse 17, I believe it is, says that God did not create the world in vain. That phrase in vain is the same phrase without form and void in Genesis 1-2. So apparently there had to be something here before the earth became without form and void. So when God recreates the earth and reestablishes order to the earth, reestablishes physical laws or the laws of nature onto the earth, he did it with his words. He exercised authority in, in this case, in Genesis 1 case. He created the world, exercised his authority under creation. Well, notice in Matthew and uh, Mark chapter 11 that we just read, notice what Jesus talks about holding faith. Have faith in God or have the faith of God. Hold the faith of God. What are we supposed to understand about that? the very next thing he talks about is the words that we speak. Have faith in God or hold the faith of God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, first thing he talks about concerning faith in his description to the disciples or definition of, of a revelation, I guess we should say, of how he affected a change in the fig tree how he exercised authority over the fig tree. Well, what did he do? He spoke to it. He said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And then Jesus tells us in verse 23 that this is a principle that works for anybody. It's a principle that works for everybody. Have faith in God or have the faith of God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. We pointed this out before, but it certainly bears repetition at this point. There are three times in this verse that the word say is used in some form relative to the believer. 
Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So say is in that verse three times relative to the believer. The first, word, uh, the first time the word say is used in verse 23 is Jesus saying. So that doesn't count. But say is used relative, relative to or in reference to the believer three times and believe is only in there once. Now, does that mean believing is less important than saying? No, believing is the source of what we say. But the emphasis is on the words that we speak, not just the things that we believe. Folks, if you notice, if you look at the criticism that the world, the church world, I should say, tries to pour on those of us that believe in using our faith for something other than just being saved. The criticism is all about confession. The, cri- the criticism is against confession. It's not against believing. People that want to discredit the so-called word of faith doctrine, their concern is, their complaint is, without exception, the confession part, not the believing part. Now, why wouldn't that be? Because the devil knows it's not just what you believe that counts. It's what you say. The devil doesn't care if you believe the right things as long as you don't say them. For example, you remember over in Acts chapter 14 where Paul and Silas go preach at Lystra. And the Bible says that there was a man that was crippled and never had walked. It said, the same heard Paul speak, who Paul steadfastly beholding him perceived that he had faith to be healed. Now, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, right? So if he's got faith to be healed, he has to have heard that healing was paid for by Jesus. By definition, he couldn't believe in for healing or have faith for healing under any other circumstances. If Paul was preaching water baptism, that would not give them faith to be healed. If Paul was preaching church attendance, that wouldn't give him faith to be healed. So the fact that the crippled man in Acts chapter 14, the city of Lystra, had faith to be healed means that where the scripture says in the previous verse that Paul preached the gospel, his gospel, his good news had to include the fact that Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. But the man had faith to be healed, but he's not yet healed. Paul knew that he had to get him to do something. Faith is, re- is released by word and action. So he has to get the man to do something. So he said to him with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. If Paul hadn't been able to get the guy to say something connected to what he believes or to act, take some kind of action, which standing up was, seemed to certainly qualify, then even though he had faith to be healed, he wouldn't have been healed. Because it's not just a matter of what faith we have. It's not just a matter of what authority has been given to us. It's the, the matter really is, the issue is, what are we saying? What are we saying? Now this word in Mark eleven twenty two, 22, have, which means to hold, have the faith of God. You know what the Greek word for, for have is? This word that's used here and in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. You know what the Greek word is? Echo. Echo. It's where we get our English word echo. It means exactly what echo means. So where Jesus is saying, have the faith of God, he's saying, say what God says. Say what God says. Well, can you find a scripture anywhere that says, if you don't like a fig tree, you can curse it and it'll die? There's not one, but you know what there is? There's the scripture in there that says man has been given authority on the earth. And Jesus exercised that authority by using faith. Folks, you need to understand this. Holding faith is holding authority. They're one and the same. When Jesus taught them how to hold authority in Matthew chapter 7, he's teaching them how to use faith. 
He's teaching them how to exercise faith. The exercise of authority is the word of faith. The exercise of authority is believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. That is the exercise of authority and it's the only one we have. It's the only way to release your faith. It's the only way to use your authority. Authority is utilized through words. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. You remember the story of the rich young ruler. I'm sorry, the centurion is what I'm trying to say. Matthew chapter 8. Beginning in verse 5. It says, when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Skip down to verse 13. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed. The centurion isn't releasing any faith at the point in time that we just read about. He's already believed something. What has he believed? That if Jesus just says the word, his servant will be healed. Jesus said, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. What makes this centurion's faith so great? He recognized that Jesus did have authority. Now, Jesus preached that he had authority. Luke chapter 4, again, in his hometown of Nazareth, it tells us the first sermon that he preached there. Well, why would Jesus preach it there in Nazareth and not preach it somewhere else? It would seem to make sense that Jesus would follow the same pattern in any city he went to, or at least the first time he went into a city. Maybe it's not necessary to do every time he goes there, but in the first, on the first time, in the first occasion that he went into a new city, he would tell the people, evidenced by Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he would tell the people that he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to deliver people and save them and heal them. So what did the centurion hear? What did the did the centurion know? The centurion knew from Jesus' own preaching that he was anointed to heal the sick. So all he's got to do is get Jesus to say the word. In other words, if he can get Jesus to release his authority, he knows about authority. The description of authority that he identifies is I tell my servant to do this and he does it. I tell the soldiers under me to do this and they do it. In other words, the words that I speak are carried out by others because I have authority over them. And the centurion is saying in so many words, Jesus, I know you have authority over sickness and disease. How would he know that? Well, if Jesus operated everywhere, if he operated in Capernaum like he did in, in Nazareth, then he told people he was anointed and empowered by God to do these works of healing and deliverance. So all the centurion needs to get Jesus to do is release the authority that he has over all sickness and disease for his servant's sake. And that's all it takes. And notice how Jesus responds. He does not respond that we have to pray to find out if it's the will of God for your servant to be healed. He doesn't even ask if the servant is a Jew. He doesn't ask if he's of the house or the lineage of Abraham. Instead, he responds to the man's faith. And the man simply says, all you have to do is use your authority. Just speak the word. Speak the word only. Say it from here. You don't have to come to my house to do it. It'll work long distance. And Jesus marvels at this guy's faith. Well, why can't we have that kind of faith? We can We know from Scripture that Jesus is the healer. He wasn't the healer just when he was here on the earth. He's the healer now. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that means if he was the healer yesterday, he's the healer today. And he'll be the healer forever. So what do we need? Speak the word only. The only difference is the one speaking the word now isn't Jesus, it's us. Because Jesus has delegated his authority on the earth to the church. 
Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and he began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables. And he said unto them in his doctrine. So apparently this is not the entirety of the service or the sermon. But this is part of what he preached while he was there. He said unto them in his doctrine, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass as he, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now back up a little bit with me to the beginning of this story. Notice verse 2 again. He taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine. Remember in Matthew chapter 7 verse 29, they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Jesus' doctrine in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, if you will. Jesus' doctrine was that man had authority. Jesus was the example of what man having authority looked like. Well, would he have a different doctrine for the people in Mark chapter 4 than he had in Matthew chapter 7? I'm not saying that Jesus preached the same things all the time and he only had one or two sermons and recycled them or something to that effect. But if his doctrine was that man holds authority, why would his doctrine change in this situation? Well, from his explanation of the parable to his disciples, it's exactly what he was teaching. He was teaching that man has authority and his attitude toward the word and the care that he gives toward the word of God, the truth of the word of God, the authority that man exercises through the words that he speaks makes the difference and determines whether or not it's going to be wayside, thorny ground or stony ground or good ground. Let's keep reading a little bit. Verse 10, and when he was alone, they that were about him with the 12 asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Remember the kingdom of God that we talked about? Jesus defined it in the Lord's Prayer as we said before. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is very simply, Let the will of God be done in your life here on the earth just like it is in heaven. Nobody questions heaven. The only questions I've ever had about heaven, I've said this before, but it's, it's true. The only questions I've ever had from anybody about heaven has to do with, with husbands and wives living together in heaven. And that's a powder keg. I, I just stay away from that one. I know Jesus said it's not the same in heaven, that when we get there, there won't be marriage and that kind of thing, which would make sense because what about people that have married three or four times? What did they get, a duplex? <laughs> I, I don't know. But that's the only thing anybody's ever asked me about heaven. Nobody questions heaven. And God doesn't change. His will for you doesn't change. If his will for, is for you to enjoy eternity in heaven in a place that can never harm you and there, never, there are no enemies and it's only good and it's perfect and peaceful and whatever other words we'd use to describe it, if that's what God wants you, for you in heaven, that's what he wants for you here too. The law of sin and death is at work in the earth limits that somewhat. But even in the Old Testament, it talked about obedience to the word will bring you to a place where you experience heaven on earth. That's got to mean something. So Jesus tells these that are with the 12 that ask him about the parables. Unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying this is the way the whole kingdom of God works. What he's about to describe to them determines whether or not someone will have the will of God in their life here on the earth, just like it is in heaven. It's how you get there. 
It's the exercise of authority that gets you there. So he says, unto you is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? In other words, this is the principle that applies to every parable he, he, he teaches. Here's the explanation. The sower sows the word. How does the sower sow the word? By speaking. He's not talking about planting crops. not talking about planting corn crop or wheat crop or something like that. He's talking about speaking the word of God. Remember where we started in Matthew chapter 7. I will liken the man that hears and does these sayings to a wise man that builds his house on a rock. It's attention to the word. The reason why our attention to the word is so important is because we're supposed to echo the word. We're supposed to say what he says. That's why knowing what the word of God is is so critical. That's why knowing what the Bible says about your situation is so important. Because if you don't know what the Bible says about your situation, you can't echo God. The sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise who are sown on stony ground. Who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. And have no root. The word root is the word moisture in themselves. And so endure but for a time. Afterward when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake. Immediately they are offended. Let me stop here long enough to remind you what Paul said to the Corinthians. Paul talked about I planted and Apollos watered but God gave the increase. He's talking about he planted the word of God. He preached the gospel to them at the first before anybody ever had. That's planting the seed of God's word. Paul's saying I was the sower. But then he says Apollos watered. What did he water the seed with? The same truth. The same truth. So he's saying that God brings forth increase by your attendance to the word. By your care for the word. By the priority of the importance you place upon the word. So the sower sowing the word is somebody simply speaking the word of God. Concerning the church. Paul said he was the one that sowed the word first in their hearts and Apollos came along and watered it. Taught them further the same truths that Paul had had taught them. But in your individual life, it's not what the preacher preaches to you. That can bring information to you. That can bring you revelation or knowledge about what God has said. But remember, you're the one that holds authority in your life. I can't just pray a prayer or preach a sermon and automatically have it work for you. I think a lot of people are looking for that. I know a lot of people that come from outside the church to get me to pray for them. Whether they've seen us on TV or heard about us some other way or whatever. I know a lot of people are trying to get me to get the answers for them in prayer. And that's never going to work very well or long term. Because you have authority. What you say goes. It's the exercise of your authority through the words that you speak that count. Not mine. I've got authority in my life, but I don't have authority in yours. I don't know why that's such a hard concept for some people to get. I guess it's the result of fear that Satan tries to put in people's minds, at least, to make them think that they can't get help from God. But folks, that's never true. Verse 18, and these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I want you to notice there are five things that he mentions that will keep the word from growing in your life. The first is in verse 17, when affliction, trouble, or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they're offended. Then verse 19, he mentions three other things, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things enter in and choke it. Folks, we've got to make the word of God first place in our life if we're going to live according to God's greatest blessings. 
And these are they likewise which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. What does that mean? That means they don't let affliction turn them back. They don't let trouble the devil brings to them because they're standing on the word affect them. They don't let what other people think about them or say about them or do, try to do to them to turn them away from the word. They don't let the cares of this world get in an improper place on their priority list. They keep the word of God at first place in their lives. The lust of other things, nothing becomes more important to them than the reality of God's word. And finally, the, the last one is the deceitfulness of riches. They don't let the things of this earth, the wealth of this world, the opportunities for money or riches or whatever take place from the word of God. That gives you five things to guard against, five things the devil's going to use against you when you start trying to walk in faith. Again, these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. Receive it means guard against those five things that are listed. And bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And then he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he's trying to say, don't hide who you really are. Don't hide what the Word of God provides for you. Go ahead and live it. Don't try to live undercover. You can't get God's best unless you glorify Him for what He's done. That's going to turn some people off. It's going to make some people in church think you're crazy. But it's the way you experience God's best. Verse 24, And He said unto them, Take heed what you hear. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you, and unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given, and he that has not, from him shall be taken away even that which he has. In other words, he's saying faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. And faith goes by not hearing. Or we can say it better this way, perhaps. Faith, come, faith goes by having heard. Folks, we've got to keep the Word of God fresh. We've got to keep it new. We've got to keep it a living thing. And the only way you can do that is fellowship in it all day long. I think one of the greatest things that people can do, depending on the type of jobs they have and, and so forth, I think one of the greatest things people can do is take a scripture with them to meditate on all day. It's not a matter of how much of the Bible you read. It's a matter of how much of the Bible gets in you. And I think that some people would be better off having one scripture of promise, a great promise that God makes, get that one scripture established in their heart rather than trying to learn everything that they can. God can speak enough truth out of one simple scripture to keep you busy for years. The thing about it is the more you give yourself to it, the more you want to give yourself to it. And you'll find your capacity to understand, your capacity to put the Word of God in your heart grows too. It's a supernatural book, folks. Notice in verse 26, and he said, please notice verse 26, and he said, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Now remember, kingdom of God is defined by Jesus as the will of God on, uh, being done on the earth just like it is in heaven. So he says everything about the kingdom of God, everything that you might need that's a, that you know is provided for you in heaven. Now things work a little different in heaven than they work here, I'm sure. There's no need for money in heaven. But everything in heaven indicates to us that we're fully and completely provided for. Well, the way that we're fully and uh, completely provided for here on the earth is that we have the money that we need to pay our bills and do the things that God's given us to do and to help other people with it as well. So the method may be a little different, but the will of God is the same. Aren't you glad nobody's going to have to go around and dig up chunks of gold streets to try to make it in heaven? 
But the provision in heaven shows us what God wants for us here, doesn't it? Well, if he wants it for us, and we know that's the case in heaven, we know that's the situation or the condition in heaven, then God's made a way for you and me to have that here. No matter how far away we may seem to be from it. But notice what Jesus says. He says everything about the kingdom of God is as a man sowing seed in the ground. And again, the sower sowing the word, we know he's talking about speaking words. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should speak God's word in the earth. That's what this scripture means. Everything about the kingdom of God comes down to a man or mankind, male and female, who have been given authority here on the earth to exercise that authority by speaking God's word into his environment. You can change anything and everything about your world by speaking God's word. Have the faith of God means echo God. Say what he says. Speak what his word says. And never turn back. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. And should sleep and rise night and day. And the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. I love that phrase. You don't have to know everything about how it works for it to work. The only thing you need to know is that you can change anything in your world through speaking God's word. How does it work? I don't know. It's the way God created it to work, so it works. And you shouldn't be staying up late and missing sleep over it. He says, go to sleep and get up. Folks, I'm telling you the truth. A lot of people can't sleep because they're worried. Worry is a sign that you don't believe. So sleep in Jesus' name. The Bible says God gives his beloved sleep. It also says you're accepted in the beloved. So he'll give you sleep too. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. Jesus is simply saying the earth was designed to yield to your words. There is not one part of anything that's around us, but that it ultimately goes back to God's creation. And God's creation was designed to be under your authority. Adam and Eve's fall didn't change that. It might make it a little bit more difficult for us because we're more affected by the physical circumstances in the physical realm. But it cannot stop the exercise of authority, which is this thing called faith. If you'll speak God's word, the earth will yield to you. If you speak God's word, the Bible says he's made our bodies from the dust of the earth. That means your bodies will respond to the word too. It's part of what God created. So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should plant seed in the ground or speak the word into the earth and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring. This word should is, is, by the way, the word will. And the seed will spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. He knoweth not how. God doesn't expect you to know everything. He just simply expects you to do what he said, what he commanded us, and that is to exercise authority by speaking his word. We know when we're speaking his word, we have to be speaking his will because God's word and his will are one. And if we paraphrase the Old Testament in New Testament terminology, it's the exercise of our authority through this thing called faith. This position we hold with God of speaking his word will experience heaven on earth. We'll have days of heaven on the earth as the Old Testament says. Days of heaven on the earth. That's what you've been promised. May not be what we're living, but we can change what we're living. 
we can have days of heaven on the earth. So what is there to do? Echo God. How is it we're supposed to hold faith? Echo God. The centurion just simply needed to hear what Jesus had to say about it, and that's all he needed. Jesus marveled at his faith. He commended him because that's a principle that works always. All we need to do is speak what God's word says, and eventually, sooner or later, may not be in the first day, there may be many sleeps before you see it. But if we'll hold fast, it has to be. And it will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the simple truth of the principle of authority, the exercise of authority. When we speak your words, your words come to pass in the earth. When we make your words our words, then the kingdom of heaven is, becomes a reality for us. Father, we desire, as we put your word first and say what you've said about every aspect of our lives, we thank you you'll make it so that we have days of heaven on the earth. No matter what somebody else is trying to do, no matter what affliction comes, no matter what persecution comes, we know you're on our side because we've sided in with your word. Thank you, Father, for healing. Thank you for blessing. Thank you for provision. Thank you for peace. Thank you that everything Jesus paid for is ours. We love you, Father. We bless your holy name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.